We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dignity of humanity. We are free agents, are we not? We see the streets as just commerce, a place to do business. But transforming the streets from mere everyday commerce to uh, being a stage for powerful theater can happen. Humanizing the dehumanized machine, injecting art into everyday life, capturing the imagination with instant images that tell a whole story, creating movements with virtually no money all the while boldly taking on otherwise invulnerable, unbeatable, militaristic, often fascistic, police state kind of governments, and doing it often more effectively when other means do not suffice. Probably most of us have seen or at least heard of street theater, whether we know it or not. The subject of today's Keeping Democracy Alive is tactical performance, the theory and practice of serious play, it's a new book written by our guest, L.M. Larry Bogad. Larry, thanks for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. It, it's been called Essential Reading for anyone interested in creative pranksterism, subvertisement, cultural sabotage, and the global justice movement. Larry Bogad has been called the love child of Lenny Bruce and Saul Alinsky. I love that title, that description. <laughs> it is a merging of two of my favorite topics, art and politics. Theater director Peter Sellers had this to say, appalling bad taste and worse judgment make Bogad's interventions memorable and frequently effective. Making change in politics and social justice doesn't come easy, that's for sure. It seems to me communicating a message is absolutely essential. There are great many stages of effective communication and no fewer ways to bridge the gaps. In Western history, there have been great philosophers who communicate through great thick tomes of complex thought. And I'm reminded of the early 60s when the SDS and other lefty organizations had long internal struggles, finally putting out lengthy diatribes, which, of course, failed to connect. No one had the time to devote all that attention required. And that was 50 years ago. People's attention span is far shorter today, I think. My old friend, yippee non-leader, Abby Hoffman, came out of that early left and realized that to make communications effective, one had to target what he called the seven-year-old mind. 
for example, at the 1968 Democratic National Convention to make a point about the war in Vietnam and police tactics, at their street protest, they nominated a pig for president. The national media picked up on this early version of instant messaging, and the message was very effectively communicated. People got it. And I think it's fair to say Abby Hoffman was a pioneer in what our guest today calls tactical performance. Again, Larry, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much, Bert. Appreciate it. And a little bit about uh, Larry's background, an author, performer, and the founding director of the Center for Artistic Activism on the West Coast. Uh, L.M. Bogard writes, performs, and strategizes with mischievous artists such as the Yes Men, Agitprop, and La Pocha Nostra. He is a veteran of the Lincoln Center Theater Directors Laboratory and co-founder of the clandestine insurgent rebel clown army. Uh, online at clownarmy.org, if you want to follow up on that, is a theater professor at the University of California, Davis. He teaches classes such as satire, irony, and protest. Boy, people often don't get satire. Tactical performance and oppositional performance and social movements. His book, Electoral Guerrilla Theater, Radical Ridicule in Social Movements, analyzes the international campaigns of performance artists who run for public office as a radical prank. There's a lot to this. And when I think of the history of tactical performance, my mind quickly conjures up images of the Marx Brothers befuddling stiff authority figures or the good old pie in the face of aristocrats. Is there a definable start to such serious silliness? My guess is it, it, it started around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. What would the context lending itself, what would be the context uh, lending itself to making fun of pompous authority, which might be unique to that particular period, do you think? Yeah, I mean, as mass communication technology starts to arise, you know, and you start to say, oh, we can get a soundbite in there, we can get a moment, I think that's one of the things that starts to encourage people to come up with this, uh, these kinds of interventions, creative interventions that surprise or befuddle the authorities just a little bit, just enough to get your point in there. Um, and, and I think just the development of, of mass movements, labor movement, you know, the women's rights movement, the suffragist movement, you know, um, there's times uh, where those mass movements arise, and then it's not the only or most important aspect of those movements, but I do think it's one of the important ones, is that creativity, the cultural side, you yeah. know, the cultural saboteurs. I think, uh, again, I wouldn't want to make them more important than the meat and potatoes protesters, you know, the basic work that's being done. But I think they can really help move things forward. Yeah, and communicate the message really quickly and really easily. And as they say, yeah. kind of instant messaging before instant messaging. In what ways, right. in what ways does tactical performance fit into the long and proud tradition of nonviolent direct action? Yeah, you know, I think here's the thing, and, you know, nonviolent direct action, even when it's very serious and very solemn, right. uh, uh, is still thought of as a performance. You know, if, even if you go to the civil rights movement and the very straightforward sit-ins that were done, which provoked sort of racist attacks against these people who were just sitting down at the lunch counters, yeah. those, those activists had thought of their work as sociodrama. You know, the civil rights act people in the King movement, in the civil rights movement, were like, we know this is a performance. It's also very practical and straightforward. We're sitting down at racially segregated lunch counters. Right. 
but they had theorized it as sociodrama. They said, we have to dramatize the oppression that's happening mm-hmm. so everyone around the world understands and pays attention and takes action. And so, yeah, you know, th- this was not the sort of funny uh, hijinks kind of yeah. side of the movement, but it's still that kind of really thoughtful performance. So I think that with that kind of civil disobedience, you know, you uh, you think creatively, you think symbolically, you find a way to grab the audience's attention. Mm. In this case, people all over the world is your audience. You know. Yeah, and and you know, grabbing the attention, capturing the imagination—it's just so important. And still today, some what fifty some years later, the lunch counter protest—we get it. Just the image of these people just sitting there wanting to be served a lunch, and the racist attacks on them—that communicates tremendous amount. That's what we're talking for about. For sure, Bert. And, 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 and then when the, the, the final, the third act weird climax mm. is where the police show up. You're like, oh, good, the police are here. And they don't arrest the big cowardly mob that's been attacking these people. They attack the victims. I mean, they arrest the victims, right? Mm. So the police walk away in handcuffs. They've put the people who everyone has seen being attacked. And that's like, wait a minute, it's not just about the mob. We know that's bad, but someone watching this on television in France, you know, or Sweden, or in or in Minnesota, is like, "Hey, wait a minute! The police are in on it too." I didn't realize that. You know, some folks just had no idea what was happening, and so to have that be part of the stage that they set um, was kind of the perfect ending that would be unsettling and would make people want to say, "What is going on down there?" And it was a way to mobilize people and get more people to volunteer or contribute to the movement, or put pressure on their politicians to get involved. And, uh, you know, it, it worked. It certainly did. It's, it, it was amazingly powerful, and it cost nothing. You know, I mean, to get this movement going, absolutely no expense whatsoever. I mean, the, the big yeah. corporations can spend all kinds of money figuring out how to communicate their message, what kind of word to put where, all that kind of stuff. I'm fa- the, the, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, and we're talking with uh, Larry Bogad, author of the new book, Tactical Performance, The Theory and Practice of Serious Play. This cover is interesting. It's very intriguing. It has a, poli- a, a police officer on one side behind a shield and what looks like kind of a demonstrator. I don't know. Is, is she kissing the shield or something like that? There's- That's right. That's right. That's Trixie, one of our most intrepid clowns from the (laughs) clown army. Uh, One of the groups we started, full full name is the Clandestine Insurgent Rebel Clown Army, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very dignified organization. (laughs) But in this case, at a protest in Scotland, uh, the riot police had come to clear the streets of of protesters. And uh, the clown army was there trying to ramp the violence down, ramp all that tension down, and be a little bit more surprising and playful. Mm-hmm. So while staying in the street and playing games, the, they continued to do basically improv street theater with the police who can't move unless ordered, of course. And they've got the predominance of force. They have these huge shields and armor, etc. But uh, Trixie starts kissing all of the shields. This is... <laughs> The cover is this wonderful moment. She had been going up and down the ranks of the, all the police, kissing every shield, eventually uh, writing in lipstick, happy faces and stuff on the shields. <laughs> um, but it, it's kind of a poetic moment. You know, it's this moment of a lack of fear, but also like neither fight nor flight. She's not doing any of that. You know, that was part of what the group was about. We're not doing these automatic, cliched, or lizard brain reactions mm. in the context of a protest. We're not going to run away. We're also not going to fight. We're going to play. And it's hard and can be exhausting at times, uh, but 
the group was trained in civil disobedience and clowning. Mm. And it was that mixture that created this group that uh, I think, you know, of course we made our mistakes, but I think uh, we made some pretty great moments. And the moment on that cover is one of them. Wow, yeah. And, uh, and it created this irresistible image. I, I, I refer in the book to the idea of the irresistible image, an image like that, the clown kissing the riot shield. And if you'll see the expression on the policeman's face on the cover, he's just contemplating it. He's totally relaxed. <laughs> he's not tense. He's not angry. Oh, he's just interesting. Like, huh, I didn't expect that today. <laughs> yeah, and trying to humanize. It, it, it's very, very difficult when a police officer there, it, you know, is there with a job to do. He or she is generally scared and, and ready for action. And to yeah. just, you know, uh, pivot kind of in a Gandhian style, I guess, or e- even a Zen kind yeah. of thing. They, they don't Absolutely. know what to do with that when you're human. And you know, people talk sometimes about revolution. I mean, we've, we're still in the midst of the, uh, the Bernie Sanders political revolution. And it ain't easy. That is for sure, for sure. I, I do think that, that cultural change precedes political change. And we've done quite a bit of that. Where does... What do you think about the, the which goes first, culture, politics, and, and the combination of the two? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's sort of an inappropriately violent metaphor, but it's sort of a one-two punch. Or if you like, there's two tracks that the train's on, and you need both tracks. Ah. You need that cultural yeah. side, and you need that political side, you know, or the train's not going to move. So um, I, I think they're both so important. And, and I sometimes think of it in terms of almost a, uh, the... Uh, a metaphor of like air war and ground war. It's like the the ground uh-huh. war. Is, again, we're playfully using a military metaphor, but the ground war is all like the phone banking and the door knocking and yes. fundraising and all the community organizing you must do. Yes. It, if you don't have that, you got nothing. Right. And then on the air war front, you've got all these cultural things: the clown army, uh, uh, the billionaires for Bush, yes. Uh, the yes men, all these groups that are doing these things that are a bit spectacular and creative and out there. Uh, um, because it softens the ground up a little bit. It kind of helps the cultural attitudes change a little bit on some level, and then it helps move the ground forward, the ground forces forward. So I think you need both, mm-hmm. and they work together really well. They do. I think they do. And you mentioned billionaires for Bush. Uh, I'm hoping a lot of people have, have seen that. What a great communication tool that was. How did billionaire? I mean, you were participating in that. How did billionaires for Bush use both clicks? and bricks to shine a spotlight on the politicians uh, working for the wealthy. That's right. You know, I mean, the whole thing with Billionaires for Bush, and I was so glad to be a a small part of it, um, as my character's name was Ali Gark, by the way. We all had goofy... Uh billionaire names that, that were that were jokes on the whole class the the real class warfare that's going on you know yeah. and um so uh the billionaires the, the idea was to have a really great website so that had resources if you wanted to start your own group but how do you get people to go to the website well you actually have to do actions on the ground so when i talk about bricks and clicks it it's just like bricks meaning you're working on the street on the ground you do some kind of intervention you know and it's funny, it gets some attention in the New York Times or some local newspaper in, in, a, in a small town. Groups, and then people may Google it. Say, what are these people? They find the website, and if they're at all sympathetic, well, you can download some songs, you can download some graphics and joke ideas and character ideas, and now you can start your own group in your own small town. So that's the clicks part. You know, you try to get do things in the practical, physical world that leads to people using the Internet, but not just to stay in the Internet. And, you know, uh, sign a petition online, which is fine, but to actually create their own costumes and groups and go out there. 
And what uh, we found in Billionaires for Bush, um, you know, and I thought it was pretty great. At the height of it, around 2004, you had about 2,000 people around the country participating, like in about 100 different local groups. So that was fun, and it was in a way it's empowering. You know, you start your own little group of half a dozen people, and then you just do your actions whenever uh, there's an opportunity in your town, and it gives a sense of oh, they're everywhere. So I, I really enjoyed working with the billionaires. I have to say, uh, I never it, thought I'd say that phrase quite like that. I enjoy working with <laughs> the billionaires. I, I'm guessing billionaires is not funding you, or probably you're not even a billionaire. But <laughs> <laughs> activist uh, George Lakey coined the term demonstration dilemma to describe a public action that puts authorities in a situation in which they have no good move to make. What, right. what, you've given us a couple of examples of that. I don't know if you have yeah. any more. Sure. I mean, I think, I mean, going back to the civil rights movement, it's such a key example. When the folks sit in at the segregated lunch counter, it's a great dilemma demonstration or a decision dilemma. Because if the authorities come down on them really hard, which they usually did, it just shows how outrageous that law is and those that legal structure is. But if they don't, it weakens the authority as well. Because it shows that, oh, that's totally reasonable. Why don't these folks just sit here? Nothing bad happens. We're, we're okay. <laughs> it kind of shows that the law is unnecessary. Um, so you have a lot of examples. People, people who protest against uh, Milosevic, you know, in, in the former Yugoslavia, used these tactics a lot because Milosevic was a pretty terrible dictator. Yes. And uh, they, would do, they would say, you can't protest. We're not going to have any demonstrations. So folks would just say, well, let's just walk around with our hats on backwards. That's our thing. Now, if the state actually starts arresting people for wearing their hats backwards, it starts to get really ridiculous. Wow. You know, it starts to make them look absurd. Um, you had a group in the, in the Netherlands way back in the 60s, uh, friends of uh, the Yippies and Abby Hoffman called the Provos. Oh, yes, yes. And there was a restrictive law. And it's surprising because the Netherlands is so liberal now. But back then, you couldn't even give out pamphlets without police permit. You know, So the Netherlands have come a long way. But what the Provos did, at least on one occasion, was give out blank pieces of paper. But the police didn't see what they were at times, so the police come in to arrest them, and there's just blank paper they're giving out. And they're like, we want people to make their own pamphlets. <laughs> you oh, know, Make your own pamphlets. What do you have to say? And so they were totally the good guys. So in a way, like these kind of provocative actions, et cetera, it does. It can put the state – it's almost like having a crowbar that gives you a little more leverage when you're so – perhaps resource poor, you don't have corporate funding, you don't have a state grant of some kind, because, you know, <laughs> you're activists. Right. But you use this kind of creativity and surprising playfulness. It's like a crowbar. It gives you more leverage than you would otherwise have. Fascinating. And, you know, some people have, have denigrated people like Abby Hoffman saying, oh, he's, he's just a clown. Th that, <laughs> but, you know, there is a, a place for that. I mean, People, I've heard people say, well, you got to get serious. You have to, you know, cut your hair, wear a tie if you're a guy, right. get get elected, participate in the system, making fun of it. What, is it. what does it do? What do you, what does it accomplish? What do you say to them? Man, I, I have a lot to say about that. I think that's a great question, Bert. You, as you can imagine, I've come into it, uh, encountered it in my, in my career, or if such as it is. I think sometimes you have to take a situation seriously enough to make fun of it. Uh -huh. Like, it, you've taken it really seriously. You're actually thinking about how to undermine it and make fun of it. And and w one of our mantras in the movement, I found, at least certainly in the clown army, was serious but not solemn. Hmm. In other words, you can be very serious without f furrowing your brows, 
You know what I mean? Like, these are cliched ways of expressing how serious you are. And I think that's fine. But there, yeah, you got to respect there's many ways to be really serious on an issue, and some of them involve the use of humor, you know, the use of irony and satire, because you can reach out to more people more effectively that way. So it's almost like you're taking it very seriously and putting a lot of creative effort into it, if you see what I mean. And I think that we can, again, use these kinds of techniques as a voice amplifier for the movement. Um, and it's, you know, you, you do take responsibility. In other words, if you're representing a movement, whether you like it or not, you do have to think ethically about what you're doing, right? So you want to think, is the image that we're creating serving the movement or not? Is it communicating our message? That's the kind of responsibility I think people should take when they do a street theater thing or a media prank that reaches lots of people because you did something outrageous. Mm. Um, sure, you want to think about, are you representing what the movement is about? But I would not be afraid to be to use humor and other cultural ways to surprise people. I think that's fine. Anyway, that's that's how I see it, and I've I've encountered that too. Oh, I've encountered people saying, "Okay, I get it. You guys got on CNN and MSNBC and whatnot because you did that big prank." But you know, isn't that a bit too silly? You know, and and I would say, look, if the if the message got lost in the silliness, mm -hmm. I would say we'd need to change what we're doing. You know. But if the message is embedded in the silliness, I mean, even the group, the group's name, Billionaires for Bush, yes. contains the message. <laughs> if you just repeat our name, that's the message. You know? <laughs> that's right. When we, you know what I mean? Like, so that's we're getting our, we're, you know, you get the memes out there. You get the messages out. Ah, uh, yes. One of those newfangled word memes. Bert Cohen here <laughs> on Keeping Democracy <laughs> Alive. Our guest today, Larry Bogad. Fascinating subject. Tactical Performance is the name of his new book, The Theory and Practice of Serious play. And I'm reminded, as you were describing it, of uh, people throwing what looked like blood on fur coats. It offended some people, but boy, it got the message out there. You know, because, yeah. uh, I mean, animals that are fur-bearing animals, you know, they have blood inside them. You want you to think about this. How do you measure the effectiveness of tactical performance? That's got to be kind of challenging. It sure is, and I'll, and I'll give you a I mean, short answer. Sometimes you can't do it quantitatively. Like, sometimes you can't say, okay, we changed 732 people's votes right. with this action. Right. You know, we just did this crazy uh, street theater intervention in the Capitol. So it's very hard to, to, be, to get crunch it as a number crunching thing. But sometimes it can be a qualitative aspect where you're like, okay, um, you know, the Los Angeles Auto Show was happening. And we didn't like, back in 2007, like we didn't like how they were trying to say that they were making all these great environmentally friendly cars, but they really weren't yet. You know, they, it was kind of a front. Yeah. So to expose that, we created a group called the Oil Enforcement Agency that went there and busted the place. And we had uniforms and <laughs> we gave speeches, we had badges, et cetera. Yeah. And we did a whole media intervention that was truly bizarre. But between that and a bunch of other pranks that we did that weekend... Now, I can't tell you how many people's minds exactly we changed scientifically. I do know that the media coverage of the event started to shift, and they started uh -huh. to talk about greenwashing. We wanted to talk about greenwashing Perfect. your image, Perfect. making yourself look more green than you are. Yes. And the media took hold of that and started to say, hmm, the LA Auto Show, are they greenwashing their image? And so Perfect. sometimes you have straightforward things where you're like, we're kind of changing the local or state-level conversation with these actions, or even the national sometimes. Sometimes, though, the 
I have to say, there's other ways to measure the effectiveness. Like, oh, we have more people in our movement now because our actions are more fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's a different side of the whole thing. But when people feel that they can go to a demonstration and be creative if they want and show up in some kind of a costume and express themselves or be part of a, a kind of a funny action, sometimes that just it makes the space more attractive that we're creating. You know, we're opening mm-hmm. up a space for dissent that is creative. So now I don't know how many people out in the world we're changing. I hope, I hope we are. Yeah. But certainly within the movement, say, like, hey, the movement's bigger and happier and people are having a good time and getting more active. That's got a value too. Absolutely. And one of my favorite quotes is from Emma Goldman. You probably know what I'm going to say. If, yeah. I, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. You know, That's right. if, if it's boring, if it's no fun, you know, look, Americans, we like, we like fun. Europeans seem to do it differently. They get into street demonstrations on a regular basis. They realize they have some power here. You know, you got to make it fun. And and going back to Emma Goldman, uh, you know, around the uh, turn of the century, she was uh, way out there at the time, for sure, uh, for birth control, yeah. among many things. I, I'm thinking about some of the history here. I suppose this may get a little bit serious here. I'm thinking that an early example of tactical performance came with the Dadaist art movement in the early 20th century when their point, it seems to me, or at least what I get out of it, and you know, everybody gets something different out of it, which is a lovely thing, was to create a spectacle to humanize an increasingly dehumanized, mechanistic, industrialized, greed-driven world. Is there something inherently transformative about street theater showing up unannounced, taking over the streets, who are normally, which are normally unacknowledged, and, and putting on a play? What, what about some of this uh, background? Am I guessing? Absolutely. First, first of all, I'd like to say Emma, patron saint. I actually share her birthday. Oh, do you? When I found that out, it made, <laughs> oh, a, lot no. of, it made a lot of sense. You know? um, so I'm so happy you mentioned Emma. Yeah, she just made that point. It's got to be joyful. That joy can take many forms, but when you've got a social movement, there's got to be an element of joy and creativity to it. Because this is hard work. We're going up against the odds, right? Mm-hmm. We're going up against very powerful forces. You've got to also be having to, you've got to work hard, but you've got to be having a good time, too. And that gives a vision of the world you want to see. You know what I mean? Um, if, you're, if you're having a good time, it attracts more people to it because they're like, those folks are pretty hardcore, and they're blocking the street, or they're putting, you know, they're embarrassing that politician or whatever they're doing in those strange costumes and the strange songs they're singing. But at the same time, they're having a good time. I want to be part of that. So I think Emma was onto something both for herself and her own happiness and for the sustainability of the movement. And then you go to the Dadaists, man, they were all about surprise, you know? And, and I think when you, when you surprise people, you open up their minds, even if it's for a second. You know, I like to think of it as synaptic disruption, yeah. you know, yeah. and the synaptic network just to, like it. Because if what you're doing is boring and the same old people can you just ignore it the way they ignore everything else that's uninteresting, you know, and the Dadaists were onto something. Now, they were they were serious. I don't think, you know, I think you bring them up because what an example of serious play, yeah. you know, they were playful, but. They were responding to World War One yes. and the mass slaughter and the mechanized slaughter that we had never seen before, yeah. you know, and it had and they're dehumanized, really, you know, oh, totally dehumanized. I mean, roboticized people, right? Mm. And so they're coming out of this incredibly dark place. So a lot of the Dadaist work is dark. A lot of it is deliberately rejecting that kind of standard rationality, you know. 
and making art that has a random element to it. And you know, <laughs> and people sometimes bum rush the stage and and knock them off. They couldn't handle it. You know, <laughs> like push them away. You know, one guy had made a um an instrument that just made random sounds from the street of everyday life. <laughs> I kind of liked this one. It would make sounds of like horns honking and and uh, crashes and machines. You know, but it, but back then, like there were a bunch of right wing. Uh, folks in the audience who ran on stage and smashed his machine. <laughs> you know, they couldn't take it. And I think that provocation is interesting. So yeah, the doctors yeah. had their, they really had their finger on something. And, um, and I think they did help to spark things that came later, like the yippies. And people have, have said, you know, oh, this is disrupting. This is getting in my way. I mean, when I was actually in a, in a 1971 protest down in Washington, the May Day protest, when we were you know, uh, theatrically, I suppose, stopping the center of the war machine for one day by blocking traffic. People were not pleased. You know, they said, well, I'm against the war, but you're getting in my way. Uh, right. How do you respond right. to that? Well, I tell you, I, I totally, <laughs> I've encountered it too. We have a lot of folks, you know, when, when we would do reclaim the streets actions in New York, we're setting up big street parties because we're like, public space should be about more than commuting and consuming, you know? Absolutely. And let's get softer spaces in the public, you know, where people can party and have a good time and relax, but it doesn't have to be a corporate festival. (laughs) And you know what I mean? And that's what we were doing now. The police were not fond of it, and that led to a lot of cat and mouse with the police over the course of a couple of years. Um, And, you know, some people were like, hey, now I have to drive around you, you know, a few Yeah. Oh, how inconvenient. You know, and yeah, I was, yeah, was going to ask your about action in '71. Yeah. Is is just a great example, Bert, of like sometimes you actually have to. You know, again, let's let's. Uh, I would hope people would keep a sense of proportion. You guys weren't like destroying their cars, no. right? No, of course not. <laughs> you know, they there's an inconvenience here, but there's a movement that is where there's something important at stake. I think those disruptive actions, like blockading, I think they can be the most, um, I'm going to say, charismatic, like the least turning off and the most turning on of people. When the place you've chosen is symbolic to what you're about, you know what I mean? It's like, we're blockading this thing because we're against this specific, you know, problem. Uh And so it's like, even, even the blockade helps to tell the story, you know? Yeah. We had a, a group for a little while, for a short while, blockaded the Oakland Police Department downtown, a Black Lives Matter kind of a movement here a, a couple years ago. And first of all, quite a brave action, as you can imagine. Yeah. And it certainly yeah. told the story of exactly what they were blockading and why, peacefully, you know, just linking arms. But it was like, okay, they're, you understand what they're doing and why. Um, so I think that's maybe a little technical thing about when and where do we block something, you know, and, and, and does it help to tell the story? And how do we, what's our rules of engagement with the frustrated people that are inconvenienced? True. That's a performance too, right? Guy's honking his horn at you. What do you say to him? How do you relate? Because that's an encounter with another human being, right? So we're, we're doing this action. I'm wearing something ridiculous, you know, that's satirical. Everybody's got funny, you know, a funny performance we're doing for the media, what have you. But then how do you relate to that one frustrated guy? And I think that's part of the performance, too, right? Boy, I'll say, my goodness, there's a lot to that there. And I wonder if the, uh, the has, has the right ever caught on to how effective this stuff is? Or is this just, I mean, I, I think people on the left are more fun in general, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but but have well, That's they? a good question. You know, here's the thing, because I, I get asked, I've been asked that before, and 
you know, and, and I think it's a great question. Sometimes I think it depends on the balance of power in a society. So that sounds yeah. weird, but like, like right now, if you're, if you're a neoconservative, you've got Fox News telling your story. True. Right? Yeah. You've got, you've got this enormous megaphone that's right. droning on and on for you, right? Uh-huh. So you may not need to go to the trouble. I don't consider it just trouble. I consider it fun, you know. But you don't need to, like, oh, we're working on a costume. We're working on shtick. You know, we're working on a song. And we're going to go intervene in this corporate meeting. You know, they don't have to do that stuff. they got Fox News and all this other stuff. You know, they got Rush Limbaugh out there, you know. So, um, so I guess that might be part of it. Um, but I've seen some examples, like when Billionaires for Bush was really big, there was a group. I'm going to give them a shout out, you know, because you got to respect your your dance partners. They had a little group called Communists for Kerry, and so they were these really right wing guys. Kind of considered that Kerry was a communist. I mean, wow, wow really that's amazing. But you know, they were just trying to say that he was super left wing, and they were trying to do some shtick, and um, it, it just didn't catch on. You know, it was you know, and we could theorize about why. But I was like, okay, you guys are like, I get it. You you saw us, so you're doing your thing. Cool, you know. Um, but you know, you don't see, I haven't seen this kind of like massive, I've seen little things. Like I, I checked out a tea party thing once and there was a clown there who his shtick, he had just had a couple of signs and they were about Obama not being a citizen and climate change not being real. And I was like, wow, I can see that. I can see how that would be funny to someone in your subculture. I have to say, you know what I mean? Like if you really believe those things. I guess that would work for you. So, you know, there's little things, but I think it, I just think it's less of a thing here. Um, yeah. I do, you know, in this country, because it's not there's it, a feeling of needing it. And there may be more of a sense that you're supposed to have decorum in public space. Yes, yes. And decorum. be conservative as a person in public space. So that may be part of it. But it's so much fun to transform it. And to, I mean, to me, as I've told many people, the ideal politics is dancing in the streets i mean that yeah. that means people are happy they have enough to eat they're not afraid they're not angry dancing in the streets and you know obviously we'll never get there but one of my favorite uh, again quotes from graffiti of 1968 in the french student worker uprising was be realistic demand the impossible you know, i love it i it, love it from the same time, there was all power to the imagination. Yes, that's you right. Know? That's right. I remember the situationist. that. Situationist. Yeah. Well, talk about the uh, the the internet, the situationalist international, for example. When yeah. nobody's ever heard of them, but but yeah. their example. Talk, talk about that a little bit, if you would, please. Well, I Jerry. feel like the, you know the situationists. They really uh, they were super radical, and they were they were on the art front, and they were also pretty uncompromising politically, but. They they were part of the I think I would argue they were a somewhat important part of the movement that shut down Paris in '68 for yep. quite some time. Yep, you know, and and brought France to a standstill over the issues of both student rights and worker rights and economic justice, and they kind of helped to create the idea that mass protests can be creative at the same time as being very serious. You know, mm-hmm. so they had these wonderful slogans like "beneath the beneath the streets, the beach." Yes. And that was, you know, about, first of all, we're going to tear up these paving stones so we can make blockades, you know, barricades. Right. But then we'll have paradise after that. You know, so very creative and and also, you know, quite, quite stridently radical. 
So I think the situation is, again, are one of those ancestor groups like the Yippies, you know, yep, yep. Um, like the Dadaists. It's all part of the ancestry. Yep, it absolutely is. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Like it or not, <laughs> we're doing it. <laughs> and our guest today, uh, Larry Bogad, author of the new fascinating book, Tactical Performance, The Theory and Practice of Serious Play. And again, looking at a little bit of history, being serious here, in the anti-war movement of the late 60s, we somehow... We didn't, we didn't have any knowledge of history. We somehow believed we were the first. The activism in the 1930s was virtually unknown, though much of it clearly set a precedent for our own actions. In the game of political protest, why do progressive activists often behave like amnesiac chess players? <laughs> you know, I, I try to go into that a little bit in the intro of the book because, you know, I think people do really hard work and there's an attempt to maintain maintain our history and be aware. But corporations and the state have more resources. We know this. So they have people with great pension plans whose job it is to like, just keep track of the history. Like, Hmm, those activists really embarrassed us in Seattle in 1999. How Uh can we prevent something from that happening again? You know, that kind of thing. And sometimes in movements, you know, there's like local groups in a local city and they, you know, not aware of what somebody else did 13 years earlier. So they can't, you know, they, they don't have the uh, institutional memory to be like, oh, okay, that move, let's change, let's use that move and change it a little bit. So it is like moves on a chessboard a little bit, and it helps to to not be like the amnesiac chess player who doesn't remember the last moves and, and the moves from the previous games, you know. And, and I think that's why it's great to have efforts to remember and honor things that people did in the past. You can't just repeat what they did, but you can learn from their mistakes. You can see, oh, that worked really well. How do we put a modern spin on it? Absolutely. That kind of thing. So, and my book is just a modest, like, little attempt to add one more grain of sand to that, you know, of keeping our counter-institutional memory going, you know. And so, um, yeah, well, that's things... I try to tell the stories of some groups I admire in the book who were real creative. Oh, it's fascinating. And, and September 11th, 2001, kind of everything changed. I wonder how it, it fits in. Is there less, you know, uh, applicability of that now? Has that changed the idea of it? Has it made it less possible? Are people less open to, you know, this kind of tomfoolery? Or how have things yeah. changed, do you think, since uh, in, in post-9-11 America? Well, I would say, you know, when 9-11 happened for a while, people for, in the mass media were saying, it's the end of irony, you know? Uh, we can never uh-huh. be ironic again. Jeez. Of course, that lasted about 15 minutes. Really? You know? um, because the, the culture keeps moving forward. So a lot of folks in New York at the time, which is where I was at the time, were, saying, were trying to say, okay, all that wacky, the wacky street theater actions we had planned, that's over. Mm-hmm. We're not doing that now. You do have to you mourn those who have fallen and be respectful, but it doesn't mean you stop caring about social justice. So it's like, okay, what actions are we going to do now that fit the national mood? You know, we're not going to concede all of our things we care about, right? So I think, you know, um, symbolically, we actually, a a bunch of us actually had a bunch of gas masks to use in an action. Uh, It's called the Masquerade Project. And it was like, okay, they're going to tear gas us. Let's have gas masks on. But wait a minute, that makes us look like insects (laughs) with no faces. And we're thinking... uh, Culturally, let's decorate the masks in these very festive and funny ways. Oh, my. So we had all these gas masks that we could stay in the street and keep dancing, as you said, dancing in the street, in the clouds of tear gas, but with, like, feathers and sparkles and all kinds of gems and things on the masks. 
great idea, wow. but then 9-11 happened. Yeah. And that action never happened because of that. It was, you know, the, 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 the conference it was to protest didn't even happen, and we, it didn't fit the national mood anyway. So we made that adjustment. And, in fact, some of the masks were uh, undecorated and used uh, for the attempt to find people's remains in the towers, you know. Mm. So I just use that as a metaphor. It's a, it's a true story that is also a metaphor for how a movement has to shift with the national mood. Uh-huh. But then it shifts back, and then things change. So we never use those great gas masks. I would love someone to do that idea now, by the way. Um, uh, but we didn't do it at the time. And then, you know, there's, there's ways to do tactical performance that isn't funny. I think now we're back to humor is obviously 15 years later, you know. There's all kinds of humor coming from every side of, you know, the, the conservatives use humor, too. So, you know, like it's, it's all over the place and that's fine. But there was a moment for a group I admire very much where, Bert, this is an example of keeping it serious but being creative, a group called the Thousand Coffins. Okay? Okay. And this was when, uh, you know, the Bush administration, again, this is post 9-11 and he started the Iraq war and now lots of casualties are coming home. And President Bush said, you can't take pictures of these flag-covered coffins. And he made an executive order. Now, that's against the Constitution, but it's stuck until you can beat it in court or something, which you know, would take years. So one group said, okay, let's perform the censored image. So they created a 1,000 flag-covered coffins, and they marched them through the streets of New York and D.C. with the help of veterans groups that were progressive who wanted mm. to be part of it, too. Mm. So it's literally like, you've done something unconstitutional, boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you've made it illegal to take pictures of these coffins. We'll create our own coffins, and we're going to show the world. And it was one of these powerful, irresistible images that went everywhere. And to me, like, as a way of answering your question about, yeah, you move, the tone of the country is more mournful and more, and more severe, that doesn't mean you yield the whole fight for what you believe in, you know, if you're against his policies. You find another way to express that that's very respectful and serious. Mm, mm. Well, it, you know, it, it's images, controlling the images and getting the images out there. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the idea of uh, performance artists and pranksters around the world sometimes run for public office as a prank. And here, here in New Hampshire, where the show is coming from, there's a presidential candidate named Vermin Supreme. I love that name. I don't know what his message is. But uh, in your other recently published book, in uh, the uh, Electoral Guerrilla Theater, Radical Ridicule and Social Movements, you, you talk a lot about performance artists and pranksters who, who run for public office as a prank. And there's a candidate whose name I can't remember in Italy who actually gets a lot of support. And you write about uh, Pauline Pantsdown, a drag queen whose candidacy in Australia helped defeat the re-election efforts of the far-right racist politician Pauline Hanson. Pauline Pantsdown, Pauline Hanson. Uh, Hanson. How did Pantsdown's outrageous song mashups, which used Hanson's own voice and words against her, uh, how did it go, which, which went to the top of the charts? How did that play a part in this whole absurd campaign? Could this kind of technique be replicated, used against, say, other far-right racist candidates in the U.S.? Well, I would love to see it. I would love yeah, to too. see someone doing this. You know, um, Yeah, I mean, the guy's name in, in Australia, the artist's name is Simon Hunt. But when Pauline Hansen 
was getting more and more successful in Parliament in Australia as a pretty far-right racist who said pretty terrible things about immigrants from other countries and oh, other cultures and pretty like terrible it. things about the Aboriginal people, too. Oh, uh, I don't know if this is sounding familiar to anyone yeah. here right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what Simon Hunt did, he said, hmm, Pauline Hanson. And he, yeah, he legally changed his name to Pauline Pantsdown, digitized her voice from the radio and TV, and made these amazing songs. You can Google them and, and find them online, folks. Um, they're really funny. Um, and took her voice, which was very distinctive, everyone knew it was her, and changed the lyrics to be against her politics and to kind of make fun of her racism, etc. And it, they went, yeah, they were very popular songs. They became Pauline Pantsdown's campaign songs when he got on the ballot legally <laughs> and ran against her, which is amazing. And yeah, in the end, I can't tell you exactly how much, you know, in terms of numbers, yeah. I can't say how, how, uh, how much it affected the votes. But Pauline Hanson did leave, lose her seat in Parliament. Excellent. And at least some of that is because she was totally befuddled by this radical drag queen who kept chasing her around in his high heels, saying, hey, how come, you, don't you remember me? I'm your long-lost sister, Pauline Pants. <laughs> you know, and like, please stop being a racist. It's not too late. You know? mm-hmm. And through this kind of gentle and not-so-gentle satire, just throwing off her campaign. No, and, um, I love it. I will say one thing Pauline Hanson did wrong as a mistake was take it too seriously and overreact. Yeah. And our current uh, pretty hardcore racist politician, Trump, that we're talking about, yes. um, he's got a pretty thin skin, too, so this might work real well. Oh, <laughs> interesting. People should take, yeah. people should take your course. You, you teach as well. What, what kind of stuff do you uh, teach? What, what do the students learn from you? Well, you know, I, so, uh, yeah, I, I teach up at UC Davis, um, uh, and I teach classes like satire, irony, and protest, um, which gives about a lot of the history and theory of this kind of work around the world. You know, both uh, you know, in in most, I try to cover most continents. <laughs> you know, where where I've got the research of of people using these 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 techniques for protest. And another class called tactical performance, like the book. And in that class, your final project is to go out and do an intervention in the world creatively on a subject you're passionate about. So that makes the uh, Davis and campus area pretty interesting for about a week towards the end of the quarter, and I enjoy that. Oh, I um, bet. But, you know, I'll, I also do workshops around the world with groups. So I uh, was in Latvia a little while ago oh, wow. and uh, working with artist activists there who wanted to work on issues like homophobia in their government and uh, things like that. And so I've, I've had a good time uh, learning as I go. That That becomes very much a learning experience for me if I'm in... Iceland or Argentina or Egypt, I learn it at least as much as they do because we talk about, okay, what's the cultural situation here? What's the symbolism here that you work with? Because you've got to work with the cultural terrain wherever you are and be as savvy as possible. So it's always a learning experience for me, too. Well, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, it, it, certainly people in power who have the incredible military training have all the guns in the world. You can't. I mean, some people. I've actually heard in the past. You know, people say, "Oh, we need we need a revolution." You know, pick up your guns. No, no, you're going to lose and lose badly. You know, and somehow there's got to be ways of of taking them on. You know, as as the cover of the book. You know, like and there was that whole uh, putting the flower in the barrel of the gun. What a great tactical performance that was back in '67 at the uh, October. Uh, Pentagon demonstration, and I wonder now, you know, with the with the uh, increasing, dare I say, surveillance state that's going on out there, the you know, 
it's it's taking it on is very very difficult and the and the powers that be have have really dug in they see you know military solutions to everything and and the police are increasingly militarized i can't help but think that what you're talking about may provide effective tools that otherwise just aren't there through through normal channels yeah i mean i think part of it is thinking when you're thinking tactically it's like okay what are our strengths and what are our weaknesses? Mm-hmm. So you don't play to your weaknesses, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, you're, unless you really want to lose, you know, you don't say, okay, we're going to definitely lose this way. Let's do that. <laughs> so I think it, it, you know what I mean? So I think sometimes you're like, okay, we've got some creativity. We've got some inventiveness. We can surprise them. We can think a couple steps ahead. Sometimes your opponent is so much more powerful, as you're saying. Sometimes that makes them predictable because uh-huh. you get a little arrogant when you have all the cards. You just say, oh, well, let's just keep playing this card because it always works, right? So I understand why the authorities do that, but sometimes that makes them predictable. And you can say, okay, we know they're going to do this, so mm-hmm. let's do this other thing that will outflank them conceptually. You know? yes. And again, this has happened in places like communist Poland, uh, where a group called the Orange Alternative was there. They didn't get quite enough credit for all the reforms and um, the peaceful revolution in Poland. But I think the Orange Alternative is such a great example, because of course there was solidarity and, and the union struggle, but there were also these folks who just confused the secret police with sarcastic actions and, you know, and surprising weird, actually Dadaist actions, hmm. where the state was like, can we arrest them for just being too enthusiastic? Like, <laughs> That guy's, they're, they're all showing up only with red things because they're communists. So that everyone just is wearing red and only eating red things. And that guy's giving a very old-fashioned Lenin speech while everyone's scrubbing the floor. What? What exactly is that? And this is the kind of thing you would do, like over-obedience to the state. to uh-huh. where Actually, they were having a sarcastic political demonstration that had no permit. You know? So I'm just giving you an example from the other side of the Iron Curtain where um, they helped people to get together and organize through this festive, weird kind of protest, you know, they, so anyway, that's an example from Poland, but I do think it's important to be unexpected and surprising and to befuddle the authorities. Yes. So that's what we try to get at. And I'm reminded in, in uh, communist occupied Russian, Soviet occupied, uh, then Czechoslovakia, there was the plastic people of the universe. Not particularly political, but they, they drove the authorities crazy. They didn't know what to do about Absolutely. it. <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes, the, as Saul Alinsky said, the action is in the reaction. If you I just have a great know. band that's a little bit irreverent like they were, and the police freak out, that undermines their authority a bit. You know, it shows, wow, this is a pretty brittle state here. If you can't <laughs> handle a cool band playing. Yeah, for you sure. Know? Yeah, really. And, you know, the... the uh, Conventions, the Republican and Democratic conventions are coming up. And I remember in 2004 at the Republican National Convention, I believe it was in New York, protests were limited to a free speech zone far away from the conventioneers. The conventioners never saw it. The same is planned for this year's Democratic convention, which should be a lively convention inside the halls. What are the pros and cons of protesting, or as you call it, crashing the party at big national events? such as political conventions. Do you have any ideas for what we expect to see? Well, well, I don't know what to expect to see, either in Philly or Cleveland. I do think there's going to be this other undercurrent of, in some cases, potential violence, right? Yes. Because Trump's really riled people up, and then other people react with violence. So we've had an event, we had recently, right, not far from where I am, in San Jose, uh, where there was violence at a Trump rally, and people came. 
And it's like, so I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that, yes. that it will degenerate into this. I'm hoping not. I'm hoping that people will focus on telling the story that they want to tell about the issues, you know, creatively. Um, I think sometimes when you're, you know, the pros and cons of protesting at an at a, at a event like this or crashing the party, right. I think that uh, the advantage is, you know, if you're a group that's resource poor and you don't, you know, it's like you can buy a full page ad in a major newspaper or an ad on mm-hmm. TV. Mm-hmm. Well, these events are so mediatized. If you can just ju- you know, sort of jump in front of the camera and make your statement, uh-huh. you can get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, so that's why people do it. And we do it all the time. I, I've done it a number of times. The disadvantage, of course, is that they know you're coming. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, they kind of know you're going to do that. So these things, these events get more and more fortified over time to the point of excess and absurdity. Like I don't think you need armored cars to stop a, a peaceful yeah, protest. Yeah, um, but but we've seen that kind of absurdity. So it, it does get to the point where sometimes the actions become about how over police they are. Yes, absolutely. And. Um, you know, uh, there, were, there was a great one in, in, in Montreal. This wasn't for a political convention, but it was an uh, economic convention. And a, a guy made a, a catapult and started launching teddy bears uh, at the convention because there was this huge wall and a huge number of police everywhere. It was like a medieval castle. So he made that point by rolling up this catapult and shooting teddy bears. Oh my God. Um, again, very playful, very silly. And uh, soft. But calling attention to how ridiculous it is, you know, to, to make it so people can't protest effectively. Um, but it does happen. And I'm hoping that doesn't happen in Philly. I'm hoping the mayor of Philly tries to follow more in the history of, oh, this is the, where the freedom, yeah. the freedom started, you know, Founding Fathers yeah, and really? Liberty Bell. I, I would love it if he becomes a guy who says, let's rein the police in. Let's let this happen a little better. And hopefully that's a story he wants to tell, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I would say that those are the pros and cons. Sometimes it's better to pick another spot to do your action where you won't be drowned out by that kind of paramilitary or, uh, state. Um, it's challenging, and, but it's, it involves uh, the synapses at work. It involves tactical, absolutely, as you say. Just real briefly, I don't know if we can. Uh, one of the things that, that bugs me very much is how the majority of citizens in America these days have accepted their own powerlessness. And I find it really disturbing that, you know, in the 60s, we're out in the streets, we won civil rights, we did stop the war in Vietnam. Might tactical performance once again be picked up as a tool for fighting injustice? And uh, is there a way that people can start to believe, hey, we're not powerless. This, you know, this, we can be part of making real change. Yeah, I mean, I think it's happening now. I may just be uh, uh, ridiculously optimistic uh, by nature. I'm not sure. But um, I think it's been happening. And I think it's been happening in ways that are both very uh, grim and serious and also very playful. Uh, I think with new media now, we're able to document our, ourselves and become the media, as people used to say, don't uh, complain yes. about the media, become the media. Yeah. Well, the cool thing now is actually you can, and maybe you create an image from something you did that really gets out there uh, on, on the Internet, et cetera, whether or not the major media ignore it because their corporate sponsors don't yeah. like it. You can get it out there anyway. So. I think it has been. I think it. I think it is growing. I think that that desire for expression as part of a collective movement. I think it's happening. You know, and I and I mean, even issues around things as heavy as racist police brutality, right? Yeah. And the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that it's been amazing how protesters in that movement and organizers have used the communicative strategies as well as big actions, 
ranging from civil disobedience to all kinds of things, um, to call attention to an issue that needed desperately to be addressed. And I hope it's going to, I hope there's mm-hmm. progress on that front. We're not there yet, for sure. But the internet has helped a bit. I mean, everybody has a little stage now. You can do, you know, it, it, it it's driving the big corporate media crazy, and that's like part of what we're talking about here. It's, that, uh, and that's a good sign. Um, you do have to get over the, what I, I think of as the cat video phenomenon. You know, how do you radicalize uh, the cat yes. video? Uh, because we'll do something really clever. We do okay. We get some hits. And then someone posts another video of their cat being funny, and it gets millions of hits. And we're like, no. darn it. We've got to radicalize that cat. <laughs> We got to use that cat to get our message out. So I'm kidding, but you know, it's like it's part of the, this challenge: is how do you get out there in that sense and and see what people really enjoy, and then just take a little turn on it, take a little twist on it, and and make it tell your story. Ah, yes. Well, this has been fascinating. It's it's a nice, fun diversion from the oh so serious politics that uh, pervades us these days. The book is called Tactical Performance, The Theory and Practice of Serious Play. L.M. Boged, Larry, thanks so much for being with us and helping to keep democracy alive, indeed. What an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just